morning Stonebridge. I am so glad to be with you all as as always. Like I just love being here, gathering with you all, worshiping with you all. And I don't I don't want to curse us. I don't know if I necessarily believe in that anyway, but I think maybe finally we have gotten through Iowa winter. I don't know. I'm looking at my 7-day forecast and it looks it looks like it's good. I know that there are many of you in here who depend on the weather being appropriate for the spring, and it's been leading to some anxiety in your lives probably. You know, we have, we have farmers, and we have camp workers, and we have seed salesmen, and we have window cleaners, and I'm sure I'm just touching it, but there's many of you. And so just know that we're praying for you and just hoping that now that this crazy month that is going to come ahead for you trying to get caught up, that you can just get through all of that. Um, today we're going to be going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, so if you want to head over there, we'll find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. If you want to head over there in your Bibles or turn in your app um, on your phone, go ahead and follow along. And while you're turning there, um, in true Joey fashion, I have confession and transparency time. So kind of goes with our sermon for today. So I just want to tell you, so I, I like to play games on my phone. These little like brainless touch games. You can just kind of stare out the window and just kind of tap on your phone and play. And a lot of times they just, I'll just do it like while I'm waiting for the kids to pick them up or sitting on the couch at night, you know, just mind numbing brainless things. But one game, it just kind of took all control of me for a while. It's this game called Marvel Contest of Champions. And this is going to just sound absolutely ridiculous to some of you. I, just, I know that. I know. But this game, so you get a superhero, and you build him to be the best superhero you can be. And then you fight superheroes from all over the world. You fight, or you fight against the computer. And when you win, you can level up your guy. And then you join an alliance from people all over the world and you fight other alliances from all over the world and they'll message you and say, Hey, we need you to jump in right now. And so this game kind of started to take all of my time and energy. I was ignoring the kids. We'd come home from school and I'd just go sit on the couch and dad, I need help on my homework. Go away. I'm playing my game. I'm busy. We'd go out as a family and I'd be sitting there like at dinner and all of a sudden, I'd get a or at the movie, and I'd get a notification from my alliance that they needed me. So I'd excuse myself. I gotta go to the bathroom, babe. And I'd go hide in the bathroom and play my game because my alliance needed me. I was staying up too late. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, not because of the game, just because I wake up multiple times a night. But I'd check my phone, and they needed me, so I'd play in the middle of the night. <laughs> I know. I know. As silly as this sounds to most of you, I became completely obsessed with this game. And it became a type of idol in my life. Today we are going to be talking about idolatry. What a fun topic, right? We all love to confront the idols in our lives. Our big idea for today is that idols steal our focus from God. And that we must flee from them to live the life that God wants for us. An idol is a person or a thing that is greatly admired, loved, or revered. Now it can be 
yeah, obviously a person. You can look to a person for this idol worship, or you can look to a thing. Timothy Keller, um, pastor and author, pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, and author of dozens of books, he says that an idol is anything you rest your heart in more than God. An idol is anything that is more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning of life, or identity. He goes on to say, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as an idol, especially the very best things in life. He then went on to ask, what thing, if you lost it, would make you give up the will to live? That is potentially an idol to you. So follow along with me as I read our first section today. We're going to break our passage up into two sections. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This first section here, really, Paul starts to show us some of the Old Testament stories. And he's really talking about the different types of idols and the idolatry that was very prevalent in the Old Testament. He's giving the Corinthians a little, a little history lesson on idolatry. See, the Corinthians were starting to think of themselves as, as a privileged status. They were saying, well, we're Christians now and we're, we're better than the rest of the people in Corinth. And Paul is saying, make sure to let them know Paul was making sure to let them know that that privileged status does not guarantee success in the area of overcoming sin in our lives. And so Paul points back to all the stories of all the miracles throughout the Old Testament that the, that the Israelites witnessed and they experienced. The plagues that got them released from Egypt, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, water pouring out from the rock. These Israelites experienced and saw so many miracles that, from God that we can often read these. I don't know about you guys, but when I read these, these miracles and then see what the Israelites do in response, I get so frustrated at them. 
I'm like, you just walked, you just got out of Egypt. God miraculously delivered you out of Egypt, and you walked through dry ground in a sea, and there was walls of water on either side of you. And then you walk straight up to this mountain, take off your gold, and make an idol and start worshiping it. Like, I just start getting frustrated at this dumb things that the Israelites do. Over and over again, the Israelites slip into idolatry and turning from God. Verse 6 shows us what Paul is attempting to do with this section. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. Not just examples for the Corinthians, but examples for all of us as well. No matter what miracles we have seen in our lives or what God has done, it is very easy for us to slip into questioning him when he's not immediately there to answer and to help us. These comments that Paul makes in verses 6 through 10 are, are pointing to the stories in Exodus and Numbers. Like I said, at Mount Sinai, when, while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and speaking face to face with God and, and the cloud and the fire and the, the, the earthquakes and all that they're experiencing going on, the majesty of God, and what do they do? They take off their gold and make an idol because Moses didn't come down from the mountain fast enough. Later in Numbers, they start to question God's plan and, and why he's putting them through this wilderness wandering. And so they, he sends poisonous serpents into the camp to wipe out those who are questioning him. It's very severe throughout the Old Testament. People are dying because of their idolatry. In the wilderness wanderings, over 600,000 men died during that time. Just, just mostly because of the idolatry and the questioning of God. It's so severe that God, even in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments kind of hover around this topic of idolatry and putting other gods before the one true God. He knows how important this is. So the first two commands, he hammers on the Israelites. Do not make any gods before me. Do not put any carved images in your camp. Now for us, in 21st century America, very few of us struggle with worshiping Zeus or, or Baal like they did. And, and very few of us are tempted to take all our gold and make a golden calf and put it on our shelf and worship that. Very few of us worry about eating meat that's been sacrificed to foreign gods. But we definitely have our own idols, don't we? Anything that takes our time away from God has the opportunity to be an idol. I thought I'd just a handful of, of potential idols that can pop up in our life. Phones, sports, jobs, children, religion, freedom, fitness, money, free time. I, I'm probably just scratching the surface. You can probably already start to think of what is starting to rise to that level in your life. When you think about sports, not just from a, a spectator's point of view, but from the, the athletes as well. What happens when an athlete has a career-ending injury? This isn't just professionals, it's even amateurs. I worked in youth ministry for over eight years. And what happens to those athletes that their entire dream is to graduate high school and get that college degree and go to college and play football or baseball or whatever? What happens when they have that career-ending injury in high school? The doctors who have been charged or in charge of treating these athletes 
while they have their career or during their career-ending injury. They've reported that most of the time these athletes don't just need physical care for whatever body part is injured. They need mental counseling to get through the, the depression that comes from never being able to play again. The loss of their athletic ability has totally wiped out their reason for being. And they start to question, who am I without this sport? Who am I if I'm not an athlete? I think about couples who are dating. Again, high schoolers, this is always a fun one. Some of you parents may have had to walk through this with a child. And, and it's, you know, as a parent and even as a youth leader, you, you start to make these comments and you start to think like, it's not that big of a deal. Why are they making such a big deal out of it? And, and you can say things to your kids, and we've said things to our youth students, like, you know, there's, you're in high school, you're going to go to college, there's hundreds of girls, boys out there. This, it's not going to be the end-all, be-all. You know, they, they probably weren't that good for you anyway, but that's not what they want to hear. The longer that a relationship has been going on, the more likely that significant other has started to rise to the place of idolatry in the relationship. And this doesn't end as we get older. I love Andrea with all of my heart, and I love her completely. And, and if anything was to happen to her, I, I don't know. We've had, we've had st- times in our life where we've questioned what's going to happen because of this. What's the, your health is slipping, and I just don't know. And those are the times that I've questioned God the most. Why are you doing this, God? I have to fight against the idol of my wife often. How can you tell if something is an idol? I thought of a, a few things in my mind, and there are dozens of ways out there you can probably start to judge if something is. Do you wake up in the middle of the night for it? Not just like me waking up to play your game, but... Do you wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about it or worse, having nightmares about it? Does the loss of something keep you awake? Do you think about it when you're not doing it? When you're over here working, is the only thing you're thinking about is this thing and just how you need to get back to it or that person? Do you ignore those who are closest to you for it? When you're at work or when you're with your kids or are you ignoring them, just thinking about or trying to be with it. Again, this is more likely a thing. Are you focused so much on this item that you're ignoring those people that are closest to you? Again, we talk about types of idols and the severity of them. I know that sports can seem to be an easy topic for idolatry, but honestly, let's look at sports in America. Just look at this chart. Over a hundred billion dollars a year is spent on sports. And I don't think that's even including what athletes make and definitely isn't including how much they're pumping into these stadiums. The stadiums are hundreds of millions of dollars by themselves. Hundred million dollars. That's just America. Now sports can be a good thing. It can be enjoyable. But are you staying up late at night to make sure your team won, only to be a zombie the next day with your family? Does your do your loved ones know that you better not that they better not talk to you when the Chiefs are playing? Are you constantly checking your ESPN app 
while you're out with your family, when you're not able to watch the game because you had something going on, and so you, you weren't able to watch the game, and this is an important game, so you're constantly checking the scores, constantly checking the rankings. Now, many of you know that sports, some of you know that sports is not a, a huge idol in my life. It's just, I enjoy it. I'm not good at it in any way, shape, or form. It's just not something that gets me that excited. So I don't want you guys to think that I'm beating up on you like, oh, sports, idolatry, you all are sinners. No, I, obviously I've had my game, but let's talk about something else that hits a little bit closer to home for me. <laughs> not Ikea. That's, that's its own separate. We're not going to talk about Ikea. No, no, no. That's, no, no. How about Technology. I really like Apple products a lot. I like to have the best products, the newest products. I like to have as many products as I possibly can. Some people would have been arguing. Some of you have been here long enough at Stonebridge. You may remember a sermon that Matt talked about a friend who was really infatuated with Apple and loved Apple so much. Can you guess who that person was? Some people would argue that I'm attached to my phone. I, 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 I disagree. Like, I don't think it's an attachment. I really don't. Like, it's perfectly normal to be at a meeting, being ready for a meeting at work, and then all of a sudden to realize that your phone isn't with you and to leave that meeting because you've got to find, I don't care if I'm late to the meeting. I need to find my phone. I can't live my life without my phone. That's normal, right? Technology is constantly demanding our attention. And it's constantly changing, and therefore it's enticing us to pursue the newest, bestest products. Again, technology can be a a good thing. It can help us to connect with friends and family across the world. But our addictions to the screen are consuming our lives. We wake up in the morning, and the first thing we reach for is our phone. Instead of turning and kissing our wives, we reach for the phone first. We have to sit on our phone and check all of our updates before we can even come downstairs and be, even want to talk to our family. We sleep with it next to our bed because heaven forbid we not be reachable every second of every day, right? But I'm a pastor. They may need me at 3 a.m. It's, it's, it's acceptable. I need it right here at all times. And we have a rule that screens are not allowed at the dinner table in our house. And even when we go out to eat and, and even at different times, like, we, we try to have this rule that we sh- we're not supposed to have screens during family time. But sometimes... That rule gets bent just a little bit because the watch is always there too. And so the phone may not be on me, but I can check it real quick with a flick of a wrist. Idols are our way of making God into our image. The idea of an idol gets lost in our culture. 
But again, idols that we, we make out of everything in this world. Idols that we make out of religious symbols. We have taken our relationship with Jesus as an idol. Sometimes we look at it. We look at Jesus as something that we, we wear and not something that we live. We have made idols out of our Bible sometimes. We brag about how great of a Bible. We got this brand new Bible, and it's the new CSB translation. No, that's the best translation now. That's the newest, bestest. And, and it's got the commentary in it from John MacArthur. You know, he's one of the best pastors, and so my Bible's better than your Bible. <laughs> Bibles that are filled with commentaries of man's words. The number of times as a pastor I've heard people say, well, John Piper said, or, or Matt Chandler said, I've even done it in this, I've quoted Tim Keller at the beginning, right? That's okay. It's, these men are great. They're fantastic preachers. And I, I hope you are listening to as many preachers as possible and reading as many Christian books as possible. But if it is if that is the only reading that you are doing and you are never reading your Bible, that's a problem. If you are only quoting Piper, Chandler, MacArthur and never quoting Jesus, there's a shift in there. What about the idol of our free time? Again, this is something that I can struggle with. I get up early every morning so that I can spend my quiet, private time with Jesus. That's the time I read. That's the time I pray. It's the time I, I do homework heaven forbid i get so frustrated with those little children if they come down early they better not wake up before they're supposed to and if they do it just sets the trajectory for the day i'm angry and i'm frustrated all day long because they interrupted me at 5 30 don't they know better that's my time heaven forbid i go to god in the moment with prayer and bible reading instead of my perfectly sanctioned time at 4 a.m an idol will always break our heart because no created thing, nothing can bear the weight of our deepest hope and our soul's longings. Not even your spouse. They can't bear that weight. I found a quote as I was researching through this from a postmodernist writer named David Foster Wallace. Now, I didn't know who this was. Apparently, he's very popular in the postmodernist scene. And he said this quote at a college commencement address just a few months before he committed suicide. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason to maybe choose a spiritual God like Jesus, Allah, or Yahweh is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, David Foster Wallace was not known for having any sort of particular religious beliefs. He wasn't necessarily Christian or Muslim or anything. But yet he completely understands this idea of idolatry. Anything that takes our attention from Jesus has the potential to be an idol in our life. All idolatry is sin. St. Augustine, who was a, a theologian and an author who lived from like 350 AD to 430, one of the you know, early fathers of Christianity, he said that 
The essence of sin is disordered love. It is when we love something that should be second or fourth on our list, but yet we elevate it to the top. Elevate it to that primary position. It is something that we should love, just not love it supremely. And that should be Jesus alone. It's okay to love your career and to have a desire to be successful. It's good to love your family and the relationships within your family. But if your love is disordered, if you are sacrificing your family on the altar of your careers, if you elevate your career over your family, you may end up losing both. Now, all of the things that I've talked about are good things. Family, jobs, technology, sports, all of these are good things unless they are turned into an ultimate thing. If you don't crush your idols, your idols will crush you. So what is the solution for idolatry? Our next section shows us that. Verses 13 through 22. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not in participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not in participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. For those, for not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We live in a world that we are tempted to turn to idols. But in the midst of that temptation, God gives us a way out. The believer who thinks that he can stand and win the temptation will most likely fall. But the believer who flees will be able to stand. What does it mean to flee, though? We, the word used, it, it literally means to seek safety or to vanish, run away. I instantly thought about the story of Joseph in Genesis 39, when he was tempted to have adultery with Potiphar's wife. And day after day, his wife came and and tried to entice Joseph. And Joseph, day after day, says, no, 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 until finally she had him cornered and was all alone. And she grabbed onto his jacket. He didn't just go, no, ma'am, I think we shouldn't do this. I need to, I need to get away now. No, he ran away. He slipped out of the jacket. He ran as fast out of that place as possible. When he realized he lost his jacket, he didn't go back and be like, excuse me, ma'am. I believe to have left my jacket. You stay there. No. He ran as fast as he could and he stayed away. Now, unfortunately, she used that jacket to get him in trouble and he ended up going to jail for a long time. But... He didn't sin before God, and he didn't commit adultery. And that is so much more important than the false accusation that he had placed on him. 
Temptation is anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. When we are tempted to sin, we must run from it. Running from a temptation is the first step in victory. That's, that's what I had to do with my game. I had to run. I couldn't just say, no, I'm just not going to play it as much. I'll just... I tried that a couple times, and I just got sucked right back into it. I had to delete the app. I had to block things on Facebook. I had to unsubscribe from emails. I had to completely get it out of my life. The problem is, though, is a lot of times when we are desiring something, when we want that thing that we are being tempted by, we don't want to take the way that God gives us, the way out that God gives us. We don't, we don't want to flee it feels good. It's enjoyable. I like this. I don't, I don't want to flee. Paul gives us a reason why we should flee, though. He gives us the analogy of why we should flee from idolatry in verses 16 through 22. Paul is talking about communion in these passages. He's talking about the cup of blessing and the body of Christ. And then he says that we cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He's talking about undivided devotion. We've talked about that in Corinthians before. That's Paul's big thing, not to have undivided, to have undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is, stated, Paul is saying that we can't be divided in our worship. We can't say that we are Christians on Sunday and take communion and then live like hell the rest of the week. It just doesn't work. We can't bow down at the idol of sports and entertainment and individuality. God is jealous for our worship, and he will not accept second best. Most idol worship is worshiping Satan. I, I know, like, you're going to tell me that worshiping my phone is worshiping Satan? Yes, if it's taking your attention away from God, it can be. Satan will use anything to get into your life. Anything that takes the place of God's in our lives, it becomes the things that we worship and that we run to for fulfillment. And that should only be Christ. We cannot serve two masters. If something is becoming an idol in our lives, it is becoming a master and it is controlling our thoughts and behaviors. Some people may say, well, I don't, I don't need to flee. I think I can handle it. I doubt it. I wasn't able to. You probably aren't strong enough. I wasn't. The closer we get to the fire, the more likely we are to get burnt. So how can we flee? When we find ourselves... Sometimes we find ourselves in situations that just pop up and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm in the midst of this temptation and we have to just run in that moment. That's the option. But many times we can take a more proactive effort to fleeing idolatry by setting up healthy boundaries in our life. How many of you have ever pretended to be a monster with your kids? Is that just me? Okay, I was going to say, I'm not the only... You were you stomping around trying to scare your kids or your grandkids or even your animals. I like to hide around the corner and jump out and scare them. If you do this enough, to, what do they actually, what do they do first when you scare them? They scream, they run away, right? If you do it enough times, especially to an animal, they'll never come near you again. I have had many occasions in my life where children were scared of me, not just because I was scaring them. I don't know if it's maybe my voice or my height or my facial hair or how loud and crazy I can be, but these little kids flee from me when they see me. 
And then uh, it's always funny when I go to the school and like my children and children that know me from church will run up to me and give me a hug. And these other little kids are standing there watching like, oh, he's going to eat you. Look at him. We have, a, we have a young girl in our church right now who uh, she won't even be in the same room as me. She's terrified of me. Like, like, if I walk through a room that she's in, she just starts crying just at the sight of me. And sometimes I'll go into the foyer afterwards, and her parents will bring her in, and it'll be a lot of people, and we'll just be moving around. And all of a sudden, she'll happen to turn and see that she's behind me, and it's just, she just melts. Just, like, Daddy. You know, she, she's terrified of me. Paul is saying that sin wants to monster us. We learn at a very young age to run from these things that are monstering us. We should be afraid of sin. We should be afraid of idolatry. But unfortunately, for most of us, we we don't. We're not afraid and we don't run from the monster. Some of us run to it. We need to set up boundaries in order to help us to flee. You may think that you don't need a boundary in a certain area of your life because you've never actually struggled in that area. Or like, well, I don't need to, I, I've never struggled with anything technology-wise, and so I don't need a boundary there. I've never struggled with drinking or any sort of addiction, so I just don't need a boundary in those areas. Well, I'll tell you what, that's, Satan knows where your boundaries are. He's not all-knowing, but he's had enough time in this world watching us to know what's going on. So he knows where our boundaries are. He's not going to try and bust through this hard, fast wall that you've set up to protect him. He's going to sneak in through the back door and tempt you with the things you're not expecting. We have to look at the sins and the temptations that are in this world and the potential that we have to slip, and we must flee by not even going close. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you're right. This food that's offered to idols, it's not a big deal. We know these aren't real gods, so it's not a big deal. But if it's going to take you into the temple to get this sacrificed food, where there's cult prostitution and sexual immorality that you all struggle with, Corinthians, don't do it. Don't go get this food because you're going to slip into this. We must look at the situations in our lives that could lead us into temptation, and we must run We must stay away. You are going to continue to sin if you continue to put yourself in sinful environments. Another way that we can flee is accountability. God gives us the body. The body is meant to help us overcome all of these sins, especially the sin of idolatry. See, the thing about idols is most of us can't actually see what the idol is in our life. Some of you might be able to, but a lot of times we can't see them when we're shifting our focus off of God and putting it onto the created thing. I couldn't with my game. I didn't think it was a big deal. My wife could, my children could, my friends could. They all saw it. Those around us can usually see when something is becoming an idol to us. We need to be willing to hear truth from those whom God has given to us to help keep us accountable. That's the purpose of the church to help one another, to to guide one another, to help us win the struggle of temptation and idolatry in our life. God has given us pastors and 
elders and connection group leaders and Christian friends. Turn to them when you need help figuring out what's going on in your life. Lastly, and most importantly, what can help us flee from idolatry, the gospel. All these behaviorally bad things that we can think of, that we could say like, well, I never, I never do this. I, I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen anything. I've never committed adultery. These behaviorally bad things, they all come from idolatry. Even if you are living with even if you are living a good life, your idolatry will still destroy you. Again, Timothy Keller, from his sermon I listened to, said, Once you understand idolatry, that all of our hearts are riddled with sin and idolatry, riddled with our desire to keep control of our lives and say, If I just have this, if I could just get the new iPhone, if, it was just, if I could just get that, it would solve all of my problems. It would make me worth it. Matt wouldn't be able to rub it in my face. He has a better phone than me anymore. If I could just get that thing, my life would be better. And then I don't really need God because I got the iPhone's X, right? Like, I don't need... <laughs> the idol of money says to us, if you, don't ob- if, you, if you don't do enough to obtain enough money in this life, I'll make you miserable. The idol of family says, if you lose me, your life won't be worth living. The idol of comfort says again and again, sacrifice your honesty, your integrity, and your closest relationships for me. Idolatry shows us why the gospel is necessary. Why Jesus had to die for our sins. Because we are all riddled with idolatry. We all need the Savior to free us from this sin. Idols are harsh taskmasters. If you fail them, they make you pay. But in the gospel, Jesus says, you did fail me. But instead of destroying you, I'll let myself be destroyed for you. Instead of demanding a sacrifice from you, I will let myself be sacrificed for you. In Jesus, we find the only God that when we obtain him, will satisfy us. And when we fail him, he will forgive us. The gospel takes our idols and gives us the opportunity to view money as just money, our spouses as just spouses. And yes, we can love them and care for them, but, but they're just, they're not a God. Our children as just children and our technology and entertainment is just that. Good things, but not ultimate things. Jesus came to give us freedom from sin, all sins, especially idolatry. He is the creator that gave us life. He is worthy of all of our worship. And if we run to him and we confess our sins of idolatry, he will always forgive us. Let's pray. Father God, I